Well, good morning, everyone. It's not morning. I, I've already done it. Good afternoon, everyone. It is a joy once again to be here. Uh, just a quick, I suppose, two things for me. Number one, uh, in the summer, we normally have our summer series, which is very exciting. This year is exactly the same. Uh, we're going to be looking at Samuel together, which I'm so excited for. But to do that, we want to try and get as many people involved as possible. So if you like um, doing Photoshop stuff, if you like being creative, if you like making videos, if we're up for helping out with games, whatever way it looks like, please message me uh, or Catherine. We'd love for you to get involved as we kind of kick off and launch into our summer series. Um, so yes, that's, that's really the biggest thing for me. So my name is Jeeves. Um, I am married to the wonderful and now to announce pregnant Catherine Manigala. So it's a, it's a very exciting time. We are at um, 16 weeks. Yeah, we're at 16 weeks. So it's very exciting. So please hold us in, in your prayers um, as we go on this journey. But we are, we are just excited. Um, I'm slightly lost for words of what it's going to be like no longer being just a spiritual dad, but being a physical dad and all of the, I suppose, bits that come with it. I still can't get my head around nappies. Um, but it's very exciting. Uh, and we have the privilege of overseeing the youth work as well. Uh, and we are going to launch straight into Luke once again. And we've come on to Luke 20. If you remember where we are, we have just had Palm Sunday. We've just had Jesus clearing out the temple. And we hit the stage of Luke 20 where it starts to heat up a little bit. In fact, we're in the last stages of Jesus' kind of life before he goes to the cross. And to help understand where we are in Luke 20, we really need to track back to understand at the very beginning, why is Luke written in this way? Do you remember what feels like 50 years ago when we started this journey in Luke? Um, at the very beginning, when we introduced this, we talked about why Luke wrote this book. And the reason why Luke wrote this book is because he was trying to um, help give an account for um, theological Theolophus, can't say the name, um, and he's trying to do it on behalf of Paul. Um, the audience was the influential Gentile, and the fundamental question that Luke was trying to answer is how is Christianity, Christianity legitimate? How is it actually legitimate? Does it make sense? And out of that, a whole bunch of other questions have come up. How valid is Jesus' teaching? Is he truly the child and son of God? What was the motivation for Jesus to heal? And how Luke integrates different bits of Jesus' biography is to help answer that journey and take us to answer that fundamental question of, is Christianity legitimate? And as we hit Luke 20, the question that's being answered, uh, trying to be asked and answered here is, is this faith really in line with that, what the Old Testament was talking about? Now, Jesus obviously come, he's done different stuff in that time. The Jewish faith obviously was predominant in that way. But what was trying to be answered is Jesus kept on talking about the way. The way is what the Old Testament was talking about. It's what the Old Testament was defining. And what is being answered from in Luke 20, in this whole chapter, really, is, is Jesus really following the way? Is he the fulfillment of the way? 
And how it comes about is, in a sense, this complete beginning of a boxing match between the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and Jesus. Now, I don't know if you like boxing. Anyone, um, I'm, by the way, when I'm not looking at you, I'm looking at everyone else here. Anyone like boxing? Not really, a little bit. Thank you, Megan. I, I don't mind a bit of boxing. I once bought myself a set of boxing gloves. Um, you can tell I really haven't used them well because I've only got one of them. Um, but, well, I kept on losing, really. Um, but as you, if you ever watch a boxing match, all the camps, all the preparation before is height. There's a lot of either trash talks, there's a lot of things that are going on, and the camps that go on for the training is big. But when it comes to the match itself, it's person versus person. And so if we look at this, you see a glimpse of the Pharisees from time to, uh, from time, to time, trying to attack Jesus, trying to gain information about him. You see later that they're going to send some people to try and listen in to Jesus and try and gauge what's going on. And it's as like this boxing match is about to kick off. And we see the first punch being thrown from the Pharisees in this bit. And you're about to notice and watch what I suppose is one of the greatest takedowns that Jesus can possibly do to the Pharisees. So bear with me as we kind of go on this match together, um, just of this round one, of see how Jesus takes them on. We're going to do it bit by bit and verse by verse. I hope you can bear with me. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the ESV, so please get out your Bibles. Though it's going to be on the screen, we always want to encourage that we look at the Word of God together. So let's go to um, just... Just the, what Ian, um, no, Adam looked at last week, which is verse 19, 47 to 48, just to make sure we all know where we're at. So just at last bit, he says, and he was teaching daily in the temple. So Jesus was now teaching consistently in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the, temp of the people, Pharisees, Sanhedrin, were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. You've got this moment where they're trying to suss out where Jesus' weak points are. Is his rib exposed? Is it his head? What, what's going on here in this boxing match? And Jesus giving nothing away. He's ready for them. So we come on to Luke 20 and let's see how they pull their first punch. Let me just pray. Jesus, we need you. We want you here. Be glorified as we just go through this. Holy Spirit, Take over my mouth, take over my tongue, take over my voice, and let you be heard freshly again, we pray. Amen. Right, let's let this match begin. Um, beautiful. Luke 20. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us, by what authority do you do these things or who is it that gives you this authority? He answered them, I, will also, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Okay, so beginning, as I said, we're going to take it chunk by chunk. At the beginning, we hear one day. It means it's after some time where Luke 19 finishes. Um, it won't be too long, it might be a day or so, that Jesus was teaching. He was teaching away. He was already established. He had crowds around him, all just listening and soaking into what he was saying. He was ready. He was in the temple, ready to actually take on what battle faces. 
So when Jesus is teaching at the temple, all these leaders come up around Jesus and try and strike him down. Now, I always like thinking of the Pharisees, especially in this bit, as something quite comical of just all these people, Jesus is teaching, and you've got all these people just kind of huddled behind each other, clipboard in one hand, pen in the other, pencil behind the ear, just being, ah, oh, Jesus, actually, what authority do you say this in? Just really pretentious in a way to try and knock Jesus down. It, how, he's, how they've written it is, is in a way to really offensively try and get Jesus. It, Paul, uh, Luke writes it, tell us by what authority. It's not, what authority, Jesus? Or Jesus, can I just ask a question? It's, Tell us, what authority do you speak? It is in a way to try and strike Jesus while the crowd is by him. In a way to try and challenge the crowd by being like, hey, does Jesus really have authority to say what he's saying? In a way, if you remember in the end of Luke 19, the crowd was for Jesus. The crowd are for Jesus. But how the Pharisees, how the Sahedrin are trying to come in to say it, are saying, well, everyone, tell us what authority you're saying this, Jesus, because at the moment, we have no idea what you're saying, to try and dispel the crowd to be a fan of Jesus. They thought they had the upper ground. Yeah, Jesus was popular, but Jesus didn't go to seminary, um, like leadership training. He didn't, he didn't go to theological school. He, he didn't do anything to try and train up in what their model was. In a sense, um, Jesus was playing the wrong sport in their eyes. He wasn't trained up, but went through like, the different academies that they had gone through. Jesus wasn't fitting their mold. Jesus wasn't fitting their culture. Jesus wasn't fitting their plans. Jesus wasn't like them. And therefore, time to throw the first punch Jesus you shouldn't be speaking like this and crowd you shouldn't be following this guy it's in a way to offensively try and tear Jesus down from popularity so that they could do something about Jesus so they throw the first punch however Jesus can straight away see that left jab coming round blocks it straight away with a question of his own, asking about the authority um, of John the Baptist in regard to Jesus' own baptism. Let's read on to what their reply is. There we go. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why did you not believe him? But if I say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority do I do these things. Well played, Jesus. Well played. Straight away. He's not avoiding the question. He's not trying to dodge it in a way to our weakness. But he sees their punch coming, blocks it, and throws his own punch back by questioning actually the authority of John the Baptist. And the they're stuck. The mental battle has begun. They, the Pharisees don't know what to do. This is the beginning of a massive loss for them at this first round. You can imagine the huddle in their discussion, all with their kind of um, metaphorical clipboards out together, tapping it and just going, oh, I don't know what to do. If we're kind of saying that he was like the authority of God, then what we've been saying is 
completely hypocritical. But actually, you know what? If we say that he wasn't, look at all those people around. They're, they're behind Jesus. They, they had no idea what to do. And it's for two main reasons. Number one, the reason why they were worried about the fact that they were going to get stoned is because in the Old Testament, in both in Exodus 17 and Numbers 14, it says that actually if something was spoken that was um, not aligned with the Old Testament, you stone them. Now, praise Jesus, we don't follow that anymore because it would be very difficult to preach here. But either way, it's the fact that actually they were so worried that if they said something that didn't align with the crowd theology, they were, they were in a place to probably be stoned. But if they actually go back and say, yeah, no, Jesus, that he was the authority of God. Well, John the Baptist himself, we read at the beginning of Luke, if you remember, John the Baptist said that Jesus was the Messiah. So if they're saying that John the Baptist had the authority from God and John the Baptist said, well, Jesus is the Messiah, they're essentially saying, Jesus, what you say is true. So they're stuck. The second reason why fundamentally they didn't know what to do is because they weren't looking for the truth. What they were looking for was political gain. They were looking for social sociological ramification of it that actually if they were able to try and shove jesus out the way get the crowd back to go yeah you know what you don't have authority from god it's an easy win it's easy to take jesus down just from asking one question back that's so aligned with the question that they asked jesus had already won the first bout of fighting one nil Jesus, uppercut, landed well. Jesus had come to break the mold, not to be conformed to it. But fundamentally, they hated the mold. They hated the mold that Jesus was trying to present. They hated the fact that their mold was being destroyed. They hated the fact that Jesus was coming to set people free from their mold, from their way, from their thinking, and bring them into something else. But what all we know, thank goodness we live in the aftermath of all this. Thank goodness we live as New Testament Christians. We know the mold that Jesus was breaking was not just one that followed religious suit, but one that followed freedom forever. But the question of authority still remains for us. What does this mean to us? Well, fundamentally, what authority does Jesus have in your life? What authority does he have? When, when Jesus speaks something, when you read the Bible, how do you question that authority? Where does your theology stand so that when Jesus comes in and speaks, where do you respond? You know what, Jesus, yeah, fair enough, that's fine. Actually, this bit I'm not sure about, do you really have authority to speak in my life in this way? So easy as well as um, Christians who might have been living this life for quite some time as a child of God, but the reality is the authority of God continues to actually be challenged in our lives. Because as I die more to myself and I give more of my life to Christ, it means what I'm saying is, Jesus, you have more authority in me. And we don't always like that. 
How certain are you about the authority of God in your life? I'm telling you now from a personal experience, probably every day do I go through a journey and as I pray, Jesus, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, comb your fingers through my life and things pop up. I have a battle with that to kind of go, well, you know, it's not that bad, Jesus, is it? It's not that big of an issue. Like, I believe I'm right about this one, I think, Jesus. I struggle with it, yes, but it's not that big of a deal, Jesus. I say this lovingly and maybe very vulnerable, but we go through this, family. Therefore, I ask you, and I love you in that way, of asking you wholesomely, but yet challengingly, what authority does Jesus have in your life? Because the moment you gave him your life, what you're saying in that moment is, Jesus, you have authority over now it's time to transform the mind to Roman 12 bit kind of thing. Transform the mind and to believe it, to live it out. All right, let's continue. We've still got a, a wonderful chunk to go, but let's still press in. Okay, we've had this fight. Wow, what a fight. Now, imagine what the crowd would be thinking. Put yourself in the shoes of the crowd. I love doing this, by the way, as we go through Luke. It's a very entertaining because as we look at Jesus, and we're just like, Jesus, you're doing a madness here. You put yourselves in the shoes of the crowd, and you just don't know what the crowd probably is thinking at that time. Like you've had these random, you know, religious leaders coming up and trying to question Jesus while he's teaching, and Jesus is just gonna just absolutely shame them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's absolutely done one uh, and done a madness to just make them look like fools, really. What would you feel at that moment? See, if I was in that moment, I'll be honest with you, if I was in that moment, I would have gone like, yeah, I've absolutely messed you. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's now go back to teaching, right? Like, I don't know about you, in like awkward moments, when, when that's occurred, it's very easy for us to kind of just segue out. Like, how's the weather? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? like, it's very easy just to kind of move out of that. Jesus, yeah, he doesn't do that. It's really, I'll be honest, it's really comical, but yet it carries such weight how Jesus goes to the response of this. So let's go to the next slide. Jesus starts to tell a parable. And so Luke 20 verse 9 says, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to the tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And then he sent a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Okay, so Jesus starts to tell this parable, by the way, in front of the Pharisees. <laughs> While they're there, he's telling this parable. It must have been quite an awkward moment, but we know what Jesus was doing. Already, the crowd at the time would have known what's going on, and I'll, I'll show that in a second, but it's a clearly thinly veiled story and parable 
describe what is going on right at that very moment. It's showing the relational story of the holy people and their journey. We, we first meet um, this man who planted a vineyard. Now, what is great to know in the Old Testament is that the nation of Israel and the people were often pictured as a vine, as a vineyard. Um, in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Hosea, like across the Old Testament, Israel is, is depicted as a vineyard. Therefore, we cast our mind all the way back to Genesis as God has made this earth and has chosen the Abrahamic family line as his chosen people that obviously then we get to Israel, we get to the holy people. We see this concept that God has placed leaders in charge of these people in different forms they might be. So some of them were farmers, some of them were judges, some of them were kings, etc. But fundamentally, he had placed these people in charge of his holy people to help look after them, i.e. tenants over a vineyard. They were there um, on behalf of God to nurture and care the land. See, we also then, after a while, see that he sent a servant to the tenant. Why? So that they would give him some fruit of the vineyard. See, it's really important to, to just read that properly. And we're going to come back to it when we look at application. But we need to just capture that because we need to understand what the owner was looking for from the tenants. Was he looking forward for them just to have a kind of airbnb styled chill adventure? No. He wasn't looking for them just to kind of enjoy the land in that way. He was looking for them to work the field, to produce fruit, fruit that would then be collected. It was an expectation for them to do so. So what did the tenants do? They handed in some fruit. Thank you, servant. Off your way, palpable over. No, <laughs> that's not what happened. Instead, what we see is the tenants treating every servant poorly. Worse, further and further. At the beginning, just beating. At the next bit, shamefully. At the last one, wounded and casted out. We see that they are treated worse and worse. And in fact, if we look at what the servants are referring to, they're referring to the prophets of the Old Testament, those who have been anointed of God to speak to Israel and the holy people at that time. And if we track through the Old Testament, we see in particular after Joshua's generation in Judges 2, we see the Israelites falling into religious and selfish nature increasingly more and more as they essentially enter into what is known as the cycle of sin. We sin, God convicts us, we repent, off it goes, or we treat that badly, we sin again. We see this cycle being produced time and time again. In a sense, it's one of the reasons, as we look at that, that cries out for the need of Jesus. But we see them reject God's prophets, reject God's intent that has been set out earlier. These servants that were sent to help them just gather, realign themselves, recalibrate themselves, receive them, treat them badly. 
That is where the journey has been. In a sense, it's kind of a good parable to show what the Old Testament story looks like. We now enter a bit right after this, where Jesus is no longer looking at the old, but looking prophetically at what's to come. So let's go on to the next bit. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy this tenant and give the vineyard to others. The tenant saw this opportunity to win, to own it, to finally get what they wanted. They had been working their vineyard. It's time for them to own the vineyard. And they thought when they saw the heir, that actually by killing him, they either get his inheritance or that the owner was going to lose. The owner was too weak to do anything. The owner might have died. And therefore, this was their chance to say, let's establish our authority. We've got this. Let's kill this son and we can move forward. But, uh-oh, tenants. Wrong move. What happens after that is the owner comes, destroys the tenant, removes them from their gifted positions, and gives the vineyard to others, those who are more aligned to the intent of the owner. See, the end of the parable is slightly bizarre, actually. You would have imagined that it could have ended with the owner coming down, you know, like kind of like an action film where the owner or the hero comes and gets retribution, what's going on, just comes in, basically burns the entire place up, kills every person, walks in the sunset with fire going on in the background because it looks cool kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Like you would imagine it, just the, the owner coming in, burning everything to the ground and moving on. But that's not what we see. We see that the owner takes the authority away from the tenants and passes it to those who align to him. We notice this grace bit come in. Again, hold that bit in mind. Hold the fruit bit in mind and hold this bit that gives the vineyard to others in mind. Just hold that for a second. This phrase, as well, helps us understand the purpose of this parable. It's not merely reflecting on Israel alone. It's not merely reflecting on Jesus' death alone, this son that was sent. But it's calling out the leaders who have been placed in a position of authority and saying, your time is up. Your time is up. This isn't going to work. He's prophetically giving an image of what is going to happen and what has happened. In a few days, Jesus dies in this story. And when we read in Acts, the beginning, the authority of God is taken away from the religious leaders at the time and given to the followers of Christ, i.e. us. The authority has changed. It's no longer the religious leaders. They're booted out of office. And now it's replaced by those who follow Jesus. This was shocking. It's the first time Jesus really did get down 
right to this level, taking out a sweet right hook right to the temple of the religious set and showing them the result of the root problem, even to the extent when the crowds can believe it, which will come on to now. The crowds couldn't believe this bit. If we go into this, when they heard this, this is the crowd, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Well, you can imagine what the crowd probably was thinking at that time. These religious leaders that they had to keep on pleasing to, follow the rules for, they replied, surely not. You probably had a few of the crowd members probably looking around and being at the religious leaders just being like, really? Is this what's going on? Remember, this parable, it was very clear, the intent. And actually, Luke 20, verse 19, that will be looked at next week, it starts with the Pharisees going, we need to do something about this, Jesus, because they kind of knew what the parable meant. They knew that it was time, their time was up. And the time for them of leading was about to go. So why does Jesus think onto this bit about cornerstone? It's a bit odd, right? Like he's talking about vineyard and fields and all this kind of stuff. And then he starts quoting saying like, the rejected stone will be a cornerstone. Like, well, Jesus, what's going on here? Why does he bring this up? Well, what he's quoting here is from Psalm 118. It's a psalm about thanksgiving of God's salvation, declaring God's goodness and glory. Where have we already had Psalm 118 in the Gospel of Luke? Slight rhetorical question, but I hope that you know your theology well enough that we saw it in just the chapter before. We saw it on Palm Sunday, where the crowds were singing and praising Jesus, and they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118, verse 26. So literally just a moment before, the event before, they had been singing that psalm to Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. The crowd had, was declaring the saviour and blessing the king in their mind who was there to free them in triumph away from the Romans. Yet Jesus only takes them back four verses. He only takes them back Four verses from the psalm he was singing in Psalm um, 118, verse 22, which says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the corner stone. Not only does Jesus expose the reality of what the salvation is going to have to look like, this rejected saviour becoming the foundation, but Jesus uses actually this as a good pun. So in the um, Hebrew and Aramaic, um, the word. In the Hebrew, well, um, it, the words are similar for sun and stone, ben and eben. And so actually what Jesus was kind of referring to as he was talking about his as the sun and this rejected stone is he was saying that he as the son of God was to be rejected. But yet he, just like the stone, he will become the cornerstone of our salvation and he ends this bit 
talking about that actually if people fall on him, they would be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It refers back to a phrase that's written in Esther, Esther 3, verse 6. The verse says, if the stone falls on the pot, alas for the pot. But if the pot falls on the stone, alas for the pot. There's this idea that actually if we fall on Jesus as the cornerstone, our lives, all of us, will be broken, but that's in a good way. Our self-pride, our own desire, all of that will be broken. But if Jesus falls on us in a metaphorical way, it's not just broken into pieces that will then be built on the cornerstone, but it will be crushed, ground up, brought to particles that can never be put back together again. Jesus' commentary on this, by saying this phrase, says that actually, you need to make sure you're on the right side of this, that you're going to be built up, molded for the kingdom, rather than actually falling suit what the religious leaders were following, to be broken and crushed. Fundamentally, Jesus was not just calling out their actions, but as always as he does, he goes under the surface and calls out their heart, calls out their intention. Their heart is caked in pride, even to the extent where they don't even know what is going on in front of the crowd and they take the L, they take the loss. The Son of God has spoken and has already foretold what's going to happen and it does happen as we know. The crowds couldn't see it, the Pharisees couldn't believe it, but Jesus had made the way to make sure that he had broken the mold once and forever. That pride and status had once taken the religious leader's way and their eyes and their set and their mind and their actions and jesus saying no more no more in the way is pride going to lead it no more in a way is your own desire going to be the mold actually it's my way it's my plan it's my desire for you it's my will it's god's plan luke is making clear that the leaders had moved away from the roots of what was known as the way that the Old Testament was detailing this beautiful love story of God loving his people. They had fallen away from that and forced in their own agenda and own religious intent that actually Jesus was there to bring, realign and redeem humanity back to the way. Making Christianity rooted and grounded only because of Jesus and that it alone aligns with the Old Testament. Okay, let me come into land. So we've, we've gone through a lot, but let me actually bring this so it applies to us today. Remember what I said to track. The fact that the owner expected that fruit was be, to be produced. And actually it was time to take it away from those who abused their power and abused their authority and give it to those who actually aligned to Jesus' way. The line to following the owner. As I said before, praise Jesus that we live in the aftermath of the removal of the old tenants as we have the privilege to be brought in as new workers. But there's already in there a warning that we need to be aware of. What if we follow like the old tenants? What if we become like the old tenants? 
What if we are doing things for our own gain, our own desire, our own plan? What if we're not there working in the vineyard, working for the kingdom of God to produce fruit? It's my question to you, just out there. What's church to you? Like, what, what is church to you? What, what is being part of the family of God to you? Because for God, it's kingdom mission mindset. It's kingdom mission. It's being the bride of God, being brought in as the bride of Jesus, united and relational um, with him forever, so that we will be brought together, belonging to the king. My question is, what is church to you? There is an expectation from him that we get involved. There's expectation that we actually align to his thinking. I'll tell you what, it's not just an expectation, it's a privilege. It's a wonderful privilege to serve the kingdom of God. Do you remember at the beginning of the year, we went through reset series when we were reminding ourselves the values of the church, of discipleship, mission, empowered by the Holy Spirit and community. The reason why those are values for the church is because every single one of them is about tailing the, um, working in the vineyard to produce fruit. Discipleship produces fruit. Empowered by the Holy Spirit is empowering us to enjoy the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Enjoying the glory and joy of God. Mission, I mean, do we need to say anything about that? Of course that produces fruit. Saving the loss for the kingdom of God. Community, being loving with one another, having a sense of family for one another. It produces fruit. What is church to you? Is church a place where you can drive your own game? Is church to you where actually your status matters and what you do in church matters? Is church to you just turning up on Zoom or turning up in person, being fed or just coming to an entertainment factory so that you can have a nice Sunday and feel like you tick that box and then go home? Is church to you something that you can watch others get involved, but actually in your own time, it's a bit, little bit too much? It's church to you so that you can actually have a wonderful political time of just either hearing about gossip, hearing about other things. I stress this maybe too far. My point is, we have been placed in a privileged position where we are part of the bride of Jesus. Do you get that? Do you get the fact that you are part of a bigger, bigger plan than your own? That we have been brought in as part of kingdom mission to serve and get our hands dirty for the king. And I, I want to just lovingly, oh man, yeah, okay. I just want to lovingly challenge us in this. That when we follow the old suit of the tenants, the church becomes dead. The fields die. Do you know what I mean? Like, if, if no one's serving in the vineyard, if no one's watering it, if no one's helping grow the fruit or anything like that, the vineyard dies. 
And it's very easy in culture when you chat to people. Like I was having a chat with my colleagues this week about church. They're like, isn't it a bit boring? Isn't it a bit dead? And there's this concept that the church can just be a dead place for religion. And I'll tell you what, the reason why that happens is when people don't recognise and realise the relationship with Jesus is more important than anything else. And that getting involved with church is continuing to strive for that relationship with Jesus. Beloved Hope Church family, let us not be watchers. Let us not be people that are, you know, either just sitting in the sofa and expecting other leaders to get involved. Yes, don't get me wrong. Over elders, there is an increased authority and responsibility on them to actually serve the field. But it's not just up to them. It's up to every single person who belongs to the king. I am not doing this for my own political gain, but I am preaching because I want Jesus to be seen in Seven Oaks. And if I can preach so I can let the Holy Spirit encourage us as children of God, then so be it. Let me play my part. But my part is equal as when I do welcome or if I help in teas and coffees or if I just help steward people when we're up at Oak Hall. Every single bit matters, including getting involved with connect groups, getting involved with one another, increasing community with one another another encouraging holy spirit um, and the giftings in one another worshiping with one another beloved family what is the church to you let us not consider this church as an entertainment thing let us not be dead in this but let us learn to be part of this band if you want to come let's just sing one more song We need to take a wonderful look at ourselves to make sure that we are not following suit of the old tenants, but the new ones have been brought in that are there to encourage and love and grow fruit, that we are part of that. It is a privilege. And the values of the church that we went through are there for a reason. Let's remind ourselves of why we are involved in this way as well. Let me just pray. At home, or even in the building, you may have found yourself, as I've been speaking, maybe an element of uncomfortable, and I'm okay with that. But it might have just been an element where you've kind of gone, you know what, when it comes to getting involved with the church, when it comes to this kind of stuff, Maybe I've been doing it for my own agenda. Maybe I've been doing it for what suits me rather than actually what blesses the kingdom. Maybe even serving, striking up that flame again as we kind of start to do things once again as a church and ask people to serve in different ways once again. Might have been comfortable before just not to do anything, but now as things are being started up again and you're asked to get involved, maybe just an element where you're kind of gone, yeah, but I like not having to do that much before lovingly i just think that actually we need to recalibrate our mind to say we want to be part of the king we want to be part of serving in the kingdom it is a privilege so if that's you i just want to pray just for us to just i suppose recalibrate ourselves once again let me pray if that's you, if you want to just put out your hands just as a way of receiving something fresh, let's just do that. Jesus, I'm so grateful that 
you've given us this responsibility to tend the vineyard. You've given us this responsibility to produce fruit. What a joy. And Father, when it's tough and the storm rains and it gets difficult and there's things that come out of the ground to try and tear down that fruit, to try and poison it in different ways. And it's hard, it's difficult, Jesus. I thank you that you're for us and you're with us. But Father, even in all those moments, I pray that we would never think that it's about our agenda, our authority, our way. But we would consider being part of the church a glorious privilege because we align to being your right, your children. So Holy Spirit, we just, we just say freshly again, death to our pride, death to our self-ambitions, our own desire, death to self, and Jesus, we choose to be alive in you. We choose to align to your way, to your desire, to your life, Jesus, that has brought us to life. We align ourselves back to you, my King. In your holy name, amen.